0: Amen. Well, we are continuing in the Gospel of Luke as we're taking a break from the book of Genesis to consider the incarnation of our Lord into this world. Last time we considered Luke's inspired purpose that he gave us in the prologue to the third Gospel of the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke. And that purpose is this, that all of those who, like Theophilus, to whom Luke dedicated his gospel, that all of those who like him love God would have certainty regarding the exact truth of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is the opposite of doubt. Doubt is the enemy of faith. We don't believe because we don't know for sure. We believe because we know for sure. And so we should strive to be certain in our faith, to be convicted by the compelling evidence that's there, the conclusive proof that is in the Bible, and that all of the scriptures demonstrate themselves to be without error and to be, in fact, the infallible word of God. And so it's not surprising that because this was Luke's purpose, in his first volume, the Gospel of Luke, that we see something similar declared by him in his second volume, which is the book of the Acts of the Apostles. In that book, in its preface, Luke writes this. Now listen, he's talking about the book of Luke when he's writing in the book of Acts. So listen to these words from Acts chapter one. The former account, the book of Luke, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now listen to this. To whom also, to the apostles, to whom also he presented himself alive after his suffering, here it is, by many infallible proofs. That's the word Luke uses. It's a word that means demonstrated, not argumentative proof, demonstrated proof, that which ends the matter. Sure and certain proof, it's used by many writers. It's only used once in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, but referring to the gospel of Luke, our book, what we're looking at. Jesus presented himself alive by many infallible proofs, being seen by them, During 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Therefore, according to the inspired preface of the book of Acts, the inspired gospel of Luke, according to the Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate author, contains many infallible proofs that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is the Lord of all, rose again from the dead. All that he said is true. And therefore, his testimony that the apostles would finish and write about his works infallibly came to pass. And that's what Luke tells us in both prefaces. Again, when he writes the gospel to the Gentiles, he wants the Gentiles to know this is certain. And then when he writes the book of Acts, he says, remember that book I wrote about that I contained all those certainties. That's what our faith is based on, beloved. The word of God is sure. Therefore, we can live by the word for everything, in everything. You can always trust the word of God. Everything else changes in this world. Everything else proves itself to be partial at best. And the word of man cannot explain anything exhaustively or anything infallibly, but the word of God does. And so in today's text, we're about to see the first word of God after more than 400 years of silence. The last words of the Old Testament chronologically is the book of Malachi. He was the last prophet. In about 400, in the 400s BC, he finished his prophetic message. And now more than 400 years later, after all those generations lived and died, lived and died, lived and died, no new word from God, no miracle worker. They had to believe like we believe from the scriptures. Now God's going to send a new word. What does that mean for us today? Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, we thank you for your word. We have it all from the beginning to the end. We await only your return, Lord Jesus. Help us to understand this gospel this morning, to give you glory through it, and to be made better by it, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Luke chapter one, beginning in verse 11. This is the holy and perfect word of almighty God. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy. And gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias, and they marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed for his house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself Five months saying, thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. May the Lord establish his word in our hearts this morning. I want you to notice, first of all, the prophecy of John's life. The prophecy of John's life, as I said. Verse 11 is the first word from God after more than 400 years of no new words. And it's an angel of the Lord appeared to Zacharias standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zacharias, remember, was a priest, and it's his duty at this time because they had divisions and orders and they had schedules, and it was his division and concourse to go and to serve at this time. And then he's chosen by lot to do what at that time was the holiest thing a priest could do because there's no more Ark of the Covenant. That disappeared with the captivity of Babylon. We don't know where it is, regardless of what Hollywood might tell you. It's not in some warehouse. But it's gone. It's gone. I don't think it will ever be found. I think it was probably destroyed, melted down you know, by the Babylonians, God permitting it to be so. It was not magical. It was a symbol It served its purpose. But after that, after the restoration, they build the new temple, the temple of Herod. They have an altar of incense behind the veil. And the priest would go, and only one would be chosen. And you could only do this once in your entire lifetime. So this is the high point of Zacharias' life. He's chosen to go in. He knows he'll never get to do this again. He goes behind the veil. There's no ark there, but there's an altar. And he would burn incense. And as that incense ascended, the people are praying outside. And that's a picture. The incense in the Old Testament is a picture of the prayer. And that's why they had that priest go in and do it, because the priest is the mediator, People need a mediator because Jesus hasn't come yet. And so you have the temple, which actually keeps the people away. You have the priests that are permitted to go in, but even then, only certain ones at certain times, certain places. They have to do these acts, wear these ceremonial robes. All of this Christ puts away because it's a picture of him. But this at this time... Zacharias is in the holy place. He's the only one permitted to be there. He's there, no doubt. He is caught up in the reverence and the sacredness of the moment. God commanding this whole ceremony and suddenly he looks and there's someone there and it's not a human being. And how he knows this, we don't know. Angels appear, we saw them in the Old Testament, as humans, but they don't have bodies. Angels are pure spirits, meaning there's no physicality to them, but they often appear as human beings in the scriptures. And so this angel appears, it seems, as a man of some sort, and Zacharias sees him, and as all godly people do in the scripture, when they see a supernatural being, they are afraid. I think that brings a certain conviction to you, right? When you see something from God, suddenly you are aware of your sinfulness. You are aware of God's holiness. You know God in a new way. You know yourself. And so Zacharias is afraid and the angel, as the angels always do when they come to God's people, not to bring judgment, but to bring words. First thing he says, do not be afraid. It's appropriate that you are But do not be afraid because he's about to give him these first and new words of God. And it's cosmic news. It's news of infinite importance, of everlasting significance. God is about to tell Zacharias the next step in the plan of salvation. Again, which has infinite and eternal significance. Something God ordained from before the foundation of the earth. Something that will continue forever and ever. The saints in glory praising him. Jesus Christ, the king of his church, the king of the universe. All of this at this time still in the process of being worked out. So cosmic, grand news like never before and yet the first thing the angel says after saying do not be afraid. Your prayer is heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call his name John. Now think about that. What does that have to do with anything? And what business was Zacharias doing when he was supposed to be praying for the people as their representative, bringing their sins and asking for God's forgiveness, praying for his wife to have a child, bringing his own personal concerns into the Holy of Holies. I don't believe he did that. I don't believe he went into the Holy of Holies and prayed for his wife to have a child. First of all, he doesn't believe she can. Even when the angel says that she's going to, he doesn't believe. The scripture says, you didn't believe. So he's not praying for something he thinks is impossible. I think what's happening, and this is what Calvin thinks as well, if it means anything to you, is that Zacharias had prayed for this, probably for years. The Old Testament says that Isaac prayed for Rebekah because the Lord had closed her womb. There are many godly men who have prayed for their wives to be able to have children. And Zacharias probably thought that God had said no, which God is permitted to say, and God does say to many godly people. But the angel is saying, God at length now is going to respond to those prayers of yours, yes, that he heard. Right? But I don't even think that's the full, whole story. I think, as he should have, Zacharias was praying for the people, was praying for their salvation, and their salvation hinges upon the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, who was announced all the way back in the garden. The seed of the woman. God's people would be saved through a human being being born into the world because by man came sin, so also by man must come salvation. So God promises the seed of the woman to defeat Satan. God tells Abraham in his seed all the world will be blessed. We've been looking at that in Genesis and how Abraham knew that there was a particular son of his someday that would be the Savior. He believed that. And so that's what Zacharias is praying for. And what we learn is that the two things are connected. This infinitesimal concern of this old couple to have a child is connected with God's grand plan to save mankind. And so when God says your prayer is heard, your wife shall have a child, he's not just saying what you prayed when you were a young man and you thought I said no to. He's saying what you just prayed for now. The salvation of God's people It's going to be in your son. They're connected. They're one. They're not two. That's what we learn here in this text. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You have a child and it's going to be male. And you shall call his name John. The first words of God. After 400 years of prophetic silence is the name of the son of Zacharias. Johannes in the Greek. Yohanan in Hebrew. The Lord. Yah. Hanan is gracious. That's the first word that God wants his people to hear. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is the one who does not treat men as they deserve, who does not throw the wicked into hell, but he saves them from their sins. The Lord is gracious. That's what John means. And so God begins to show that this child is more than just the answer to a prayer of one elderly couple. He begins to show that in verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and here it is, and many will rejoice at his birth. Many will rejoice. Suddenly this child has more significance than just one family. And we're beginning to see that this is part of God's plan of salvation. And Zacharias is beginning to hear this. And we've got to remember this. This is part of what the angel is saying to Zacharias that he's supposed to believe. That God at last is going to hear the prayers of his people. That he is going to save them. And he says, this child will be great in the sight of the Lord. Might not appear great before people, right? Right? might not look to be super great. We've got a lot of great people in this world that are great in the eyes of the, of the Lord, right? That are so great that so many people swoon over and fawn over, you know, it used to be the, the different movie stars and actors or athletes that everybody knows. Sometimes it's even political figures. I've learned that this isn't Christmas anymore. Have you learned this? This is swiftness, right? Have <laughs> you heard that. But I don't know this Taylor Swift phenomenon. I don't have anything against her. I'm just saying people get so caught up in some person that they think is so great. Right? Whatever it is. In the world. And they are. They, everybody knows them. They're, maybe they're incredibly talented. You know? Singer or, or performer or athlete or whatever. John the Baptist will be great before the Lord. How great will he be? Matthew eleven eleven. Jesus says, amen, I say to you, truly I say to you, this is true, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. That's how great, according to Jesus. Look in your Bibles, nobody is greater than John the Baptist. That's how great. No wonder many will rejoice now, normally when we say this and we talk about how great John is, we point to his message and his uh, position. He is the last prophet. He is the one who to herald the Lord Jesus Christ. All the other prophets saw Jesus from a distance. John sees him. Right? John, I mean, that's the honor. John is the highest honored prophet with the one who gets to introduce Jesus, gets to see him, gets to proclaim him. The last of the old, the first of the new, as it were, So in that sense, yes, his message, his position is greater, but that's not what the scripture points to at this particular point. He will be great in the sight of the Lord, and then we get this, and he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. Okay, now that refers to the Nazarite vow. I know you'll see a few scholars that deny that. The vast majority, I think, affirm it. Certainly Hendrickson does. Matthew Henry does. Calvin does. The original Geneva Bible does. The New Reformation Study Bible doesn't really. It says, ah, you really can't prove that. I think it is proven. I think this is, this is why. All right? It says, you know, he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. There were three things that the Nazarite had to do or couldn't do. He couldn't drink. Wine, wine strong drink, seqara. It doesn't mean like we think of hard liquor, you know, booze or alcohol or, or whiskey It just means alcoholic beverage. It might be less strong than wine. We don't know. We don't know what their alcoholic stuff was. We know what their wine was. But this could have been something from fruit or grain. It was just fermented. This man is to have no fermented beverage of every kind. That was part of the Nazarite vow. In fact, in the Nazarite vow, not only could you not have wine, you couldn't have any grapes. You couldn't walk through a vineyard. Couldn't eat raisins. Nothing. As long as you took the vow. That was one thing. The second thing was you couldn't cut your hair while you were a Nazarite, and you had to let your hair grow. We remember Samson, right? Samson was, it says, three times in Scripture, he shall be a Nazarite from birth, a Nazarite from birth. And yet, the Scripture only ever mentions the cutting of the hair. Never says, Samson shall not drink alcohol. Well, it doesn't have to. Read number six. These are the three things. You have to uh, uh, abstain from grapes, from alcohol of any kind, You have to not cut your hair. And the third thing, you couldn't touch a dead body. You couldn't go near a dead body. Even your parents die. You can't touch them. You can't get near it. The three things a Nazarite should do. Samson's only ever mentioned about the hair. But he was a Nazarite. It says it three times. Therefore, the other two things were true. Also, it doesn't say... That John the Baptist a Nazarite doesn't mention anything about the hair, but clearly if he had to not have alcohol, he's a Nazarite. Why am I mentioning this? Because the Nazarite vow was the highest and holiest vow you could take as a Jew. You could not dedicate yourself more to the Lord than by taking the Nazarite vow. This is the greatest act of worship you could do in the old administration of the one and only covenant of grace. This is it. You want to dedicate yourself to God, you could do nothing more holy and profound and significant. And it was, a, it was about being separate to the Lord. The Nazarite was one who separated himself to the Lord. And why is that important? Because in John, the whole old covenant is going to wrap up. And so you get this, this final and supreme act of worship, as it were. The old, the Israelites in John, the faithfulness, the remnant of the Jews separating themselves to the Lord. And that's what John's ministry was about. That he would be one who would call people to separate themselves to the Lord in a spiritual sense. But the Nazarite vow was this physical way in which they did it, and Christ fulfills that. That's why there's no Nazarite vow. Now, there's no priesthood either. There's no animal sacrifices either. All those things Jesus fulfilled. We worship God directly, immediately, spiritually. We don't have to do these types and shadows. And so John's greatness is in this vow, but it's also in his godliness. This is, he will be filled with the spirit, the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Now, every Jew had to be born again by the spirit. Every converted person before Christ had the spirit. That's what Jesus taught Nicodemus, remember? You must be born from above. Nicodemus doesn't understand. Jesus at length says, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand this? That you have to be born again? You need to be born of the spirit, you should know this. This is in the Old Testament. The spirit has to regenerate people dead in sin. There's only ever been one way of salvation. And it has to be by the sovereign work of the spirit. That's why David will say things like, create in me a clean heart. Do not take away from me your Holy Spirit. They knew that. They should knew that. The faithful Jews knew that. It was being forgotten in Israel of Christ's time because Israel of Christ's time is in a t- time of spiritual decline. Okay? But John will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He will be full, more than just born again of the Spirit, he will be full of the influence and the sway and the sanctification of the Spirit. Here will be a man of godliness and holiness separated from the Lord, outwardly living for the Lord, and the sway and the influence of the Holy Spirit in his life would be unmistakable. All right? This is the prophecy of John's life That God is the one who would do this. I want you to notice also that God is sovereign. It's not because Zacharias and Elizabeth were so good that they get this. God is sovereignly doing this. God sovereignly brings salvation to man. John Calvin says, from earliest infancy to the latest old age, the operation of the spirit in men is free. That means we can't do anything to make him come down and regenerate. I can't be obedient enough or now God's going to give the gift of faith to my next generation. The the work of the Spirit is free. We can never merit it in any way. It's not you do 1% and God will do 99%. God does 100%. We can do nothing but provoke him to anger. Our best works are filthy rags. Let's never confuse that. And that's what we see in this text. The prophecy of God's life. God sovereignly moving to save his people. Secondly, the prophecy of John's ministry. Now at this point, we still don't know the significance of John's call. What's he going to do? So he'll be great. He's going to be a Nazarite filled with the spirit. Here it is. Verse 16. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will turn them to the Lord their God. You know the word conversion is from the word turn in Scripture? To be turned? When Jesus tells Peter how he's going to deny him three times and Peter says, no, I'm not. And Jesus says, yes, you will. And then he says this, but when you turn, some translations say, but when you are converted, I don't think that means that Peter was converted for the first time. He was already a believer. But, you know, he was backsliding, so he had to turn back to God. When you turn, when you're converted, strengthen the brethren. Repentance is always pictured by this turning to God. Turning off the path is straying into sin, but turning back onto the right way, right? Walking on the, the clear, smooth path. Turning to the Lord, that's what John the Baptist would do. He would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God, and so forth. But let's remember something. When God says this about John, John actually isn't doing it, right? Scripture speaks this way. Because God is gonna use John, but who actually can turn people to God? Can John do it? Can I do it? Can Pastor Appleton do it? Nobody can turn anybody to God. But God uses people, so you might say, oh, that minister saved me. Or that gospel tract, saved Me. You know, I've said before, or baptism saves me. How? Well, the picture of baptism is if you believe in Jesus, you'll be saved, but you have to believe to get what baptism pictures. It doesn't automatically do anything except condemn you if you don't believe. But it's a picture, and it's something that we have a right to, and our children have a right to. We believe, but it's not the reality. The reality is believing in Christ. And then that Sign is being used properly, then that seal that says, Yes, authentic salvation is being believed. But it has to be believed. And it has to be the Spirit that causes that faith. And, and that's important because John the Baptist's ministry is going to be baptism. But baptism can't do it, God has to do it. Baptism is a picture. It's again saying, yes, believe in Jesus, you'll be washed. It's an authenticating guarantee. That's the seal thing. Don't think seal is sealing in a medicine bottle that seals something into the baby. No, it doesn't. It's a seal. It's a stamp of authenticity. That's the seal. The Heidelberg Catechism says that. It's that kind of seal that we can know. It's guaranteed if we believe in Christ. Salvation. Baptism is... I think as Pastor Appleton said, it's the word of God visible. It's just the gospel being preached. But how do you receive the gospel? By faith. How do you benefit from baptism? By faith. Why do we put it on children before they have faith? Because that's what Abraham did. And God never says, do it a different way. But John is going to do this. He's going to have this ministry. So he's going to be a vessel. He doesn't have the power. He can't turn anybody. But God's going to use him as God uses us, as God uses other things. But let's never look at the thing and think it's doing it. God sovereignly regenerates. God sovereignly gives faith. And we must always look to God to do it. But John's going to be important because God has chosen to do it through John. And that's significant. So John's ministry is going to be, again, this turning is turning back to God. Why does Israel need to be turned? Because they are in a state of unbelief in the land. Hosea prophesied about this and he said that Israel was like a cake not turned. What happens when you don't turn a cake over? You know that you need to. It's kind of bad, right? It doesn't work out that way. Israel was like a cake not turned. And God explains in that prophecy what it means. Because they were proud and they were not believing. And so this idea of being turned is to be turning to God in faith, which means you have to be humbling yourself as a sinner who knows he needs the Lord's sovereign salvation. And that's why John is likened to go like Elijah. Look, verse 17, he will go before him. And it's, uh, it says he also, I think it'd be better translated, he himself. Because it's not, it's just altos, which often means himself. He himself will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, when John is asked, are you Elijah? He says, no, later in the gospel. We all know that, right? He is saying, I'm not the actual personal Elijah. Come back from the dead. I have my own body and soul. I'm my own person. But he goes in the spirit and power of Elijah. Jesus will say in Matthew 11:14, John was Elijah, if you care to accept it. Or if you're able to accept it, I believe, is the way Christ says it. He is Elijah. He is Elijah who is to come. Literally is what Christ says. If you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. And so he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. And what did Elijah do? He turned Israel, right, back to God in repentance. What's Israel doing at the time? They're worshiping Baal. There's all those prophets of Baal. Israel is the northern kingdom. They're in rebellion. They have the the two altars that Jeroboam built with the golden calves. And Elijah is sent to turn Israel back to God. And remember the showdown on Mount Carmel where Elijah against the 750 prophets of Baal. Or 450, however many there were. That's a trivial question that I'm missing right now. But remember what he says, whoever answers by fire is the true God. But that's not the only thing he prays for. The last thing that Elijah prays for in that text is 1 kings 1837 very next verse 1838 the fire falls but 37 he says this hear me o lord hear me that this people may know that you are the lord your god and here it is and that you have turned their hearts back to you again that was elijah's ministry to call the people and that god himself through him would turn remember elijah says it that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And that's what Elijah was called to do. Now, did Israel repent at the preaching of Elijah? Did Israel become a godly nation? No, actually, the majority of the nation did not. But the elect among them, the remnant among among them repented. And John's going to have the same effect. Israel as a whole is going to continue in unbelief. They're going to continue to reject salvation through Christ but the remnant the elect are prepared by john so that when christ preaches and especially after christ when the apostles preach they believe 3000 and on one day on pentecost when peter believes And so John's ministry has the same effect as John the Baptist. But one more thing to notice about John's ministry, notice how the scripture says, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, but it's to turn, so there's that word again, but then it says to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Now we read that in Malachi. That's exactly what Malachi said that he would do. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord before judgment day. And he did come before judgment day. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Now, the angel only says half of that verse. Fathers to the children. It doesn't say children to the fathers. And how are we to understand this? I mean, this is one of those verses, again, where you've got to understand what Scripture is saying and you can't just look at the wooden letter and think that's it. So the only thing John's going to do is that I guess a lot of the dads in Israel didn't like their kids and so he's going to fix that. And that's it. Nobody believes that, right? This is the original Geneva Bible calls this a synecdoche. Synecdoche is a figure of speech where the part is taken for the whole. So when it says fathers and children, and literally it says sons, it doesn't even say daughters, it just says fathers, but sons are included, daughters and sons, oftentimes, right? We're all called brethren. That means women too. You know, we're all the sons of Israel, that means daughters too. It's just the the feminine is included in the masculine often. But here the fathers includes all the godly and the sons include all the godly. And it's saying that those who are now knowing each other in sinful hate and pride and vanity and falseness are going to actually be true to one another and actually be good to one another. What does Jesus say about the church They will know we are Christians by your love for one another. They will know, right? They will know you by your love for one another. That's the transformation that the gospel makes. It really is the fundamental thing that we, a people who are dead in our trespasses and sins, would be a people alive who love God and who love one another. I mean, that is the essence of the gospel. That's what John is called here that he is going to be one who brings conversion turning so that people now love god and love one another and isn't that what scripture says is the very mark of the christian first john 3:10 in this the children of god and the children of the devil are manifest whoever does not practice righteousness is not of god nor is he who does not love his brother how can you be a christian and not love your brother We know we've passed from death to life because we love the brothers. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. John's going to turn. God is going to turn through John the hearts of the fathers to the sons, the hearts of the people of God to one another in real love. He's going to go forth in the gospel. Calvin actually sees and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Calvin sees the disobedient as the unbelievers and the wisdom of the just is what but faith, says Calvin. What can the wisdom of the just be but faith that we would believe the wisdom of the ones who are righteous Only one way to be righteous, by faith. And so John is going to go forth with the gospel. And what does he do? He points to Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. What's going on in Malachi when this is prophesied? You know, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the sons of the fathers. Well, Malachi talks about that same sin in relationships. What's going on in Malachi? Marriages to unbelievers, Fundamental sin, where a believer marries an unbeliever. Fundamental sin, you're putting God second. And then violence, God says. Men are abusing their wives. And then unbiblical divorce. They're divorcing and putting away their wives. And so all of that's going on in Malachi. This hatred and, and wickedness to one another. And that's why God prophesies that he's going to send Elijah and he's going to turn the hearts back, that God's people are going to be a people marked by love. And if the church is not loving and if the church is not seen to be loving, then what good is the church? We need to be a people marked by love. This is the prophecy or the ministry, the prophecy of John's ministry. Thirdly, I want you to notice God's word and man's pride. Well, what happens when God gives this word through the angel? Zacharias says, how shall I know this? I'm an old man My wife is well advanced in years. I believe like Abraham and Sarah, Elizabeth would have been past menopause. It was impossible for her to have children. That's why he asked this question. It's impossible, right? Now, when God tells Abraham this, he laughs, but we saw he laughed in faith because immediately he says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you, which he would never have said if he didn't believe that another son's gonna take Ishmael's place. Sarah, we know, doesn't believe. The scripture says that. She's rebuked. She's not struck dumb, though. In this text, Zacharias does not believe. Even though he asked something very similar, how shall I know this? Abraham says, how shall I know that I shall inherit it? Abraham asked in faith. Abraham laughed in faith. Sarah laughed in unbelief. Same outward, but God knows the heart. A little bit later, Mary's going to say almost the same thing Zacharias says. When she's not, or when when she gets word of something impossible. And Mary says, how can this be since I do not know a man? She's not rebuked because she's not asking in unbelief as Zacharias is. She's asking in faith. As Elizabeth will say later when she goes to see her, blessed is she who believed. Mary believed just as Abraham believed. Sarah didn't believe just as Zacharias didn't believe. Guess what? Christians sometimes don't believe. When we should. And don't think Zechariah is a lightweight. All right? Look back to verse six. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and the ordinance of the Lord, blameless. I don't care how godly you are. You need to pray for God's grace that you will not doubt his word. That you will continue to believe and hold on to because you and I doubt. We don't believe. We're taken in by the world. Whatever the world says is possible or impossible. You know, Zacharias was only believing the science after all. Your wife can't have kids. God is the God of the impossible. If God says he's going to do something, he does it. And conversion is a work of God. And so is the giving of a baby to a woman who can't have children. But God said he was going to do this. But er, but Zacharias doesn't believe. He doesn't believe because ultimately of pride. It has to be proud. He's just too proud. He doesn't think it can happen. He thinks he knows what he knows. This can't happen. And he's asking in a sense for a token, a sign. And who is standing before him? Gabriel. Beloved, when Gabriel says, I am Gabriel, that's that's a rebuke. I shouldn't have to say this. Okay, Abraham, or Zacharias, sorry. Okay, Zacharias, I'm Gabriel. I stand in God's presence and I was sent to you. You need something else. You need something more than that. And that's why he's struck dumb. That's why he is rebuked. Now again, God does not do that when Sarah laughs. And Calvin calls it a singular display of God's grace because all he does is correct her. And Sarah I believe, learned her lesson immediately, humbled herself. It even celebrates the laugh and says, God has made me laugh when she names her son. But Zacharias maybe needed a little bit more humbling. We don't know. God is just. God knows what he's doing. God is the one who does this. And the thing is, God's word is going to be fulfilled whether we believe it or not. Do you see that? Behold, you'll be mute, not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe, but they will be fulfilled in their own time. Isn't that good news? God's word does not depend upon my faith, your faith, or lack thereof. God will keep his word. He will fulfill his word. He is the one who does it. He doesn't need us. It's a great privilege when he deigns to use us in any way. And let this text be a teaching moment for us. Because we not only have, and Zacharias had the example of Abraham. Abraham didn't have that. And he still didn't believe. And you and I have not only God's miraculous works in them, but we have what the book of Hebrews says is all of the miraculous testimony of the scriptures from the beginning of the canon to the end. And Hebrews warns real Christian people this, Hebrews 2.1. Therefore we, you and I, must give careful heed to these things, lest we drift away, for if the word spoken through angels prove steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward here it is how shall we escape how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at first began to be spoken by the lord and was confirmed by those or to us confirmed to us by those who heard him here the author of the hebrews is saying i wasn't one of them i'm not an apostle by those who heard him God also bearing witness with signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. We have all that testimony. How can we drift away? How can we question God's word when this book is filled with miracles that proves that the word came from God? This is God's word and man's pride. Fourthly and lastly, I want you to notice God's word and God's goodness. Zacharias gets rebuked. And I'll tell you what, I think it would be hard to not be able to speak for nine months, wouldn't it? I mean, that would be real pain. But it was a blessing to him. Not only did he himself learn humility, but when he comes out and he can't talk, and everybody knows Zacharias, he's not putting, I don't think it'd be possible to actually put this on. You know, to go nine months without saying a word. You'd slip up at some point. You know, you'd talk in your sleep. Robin says, I do that. But... He can't speak. It's supernatural. And the people recognize it and they rightly conclude some kind of miraculous thing has happened. And guess what? If Zacharias would have just believed, that wouldn't happen. And, suddenly, and there wouldn't have been this sign now to all the people. See how God uses our sins? All the people now are struck by a miracle that they didn't personally see, but they see the effects of it and it has to be. So now there is momentum building for the significance of John's birth. Now they don't know anything about that yet because Elizabeth isn't pregnant. But when she gets pregnant after John's uh, father Zacharias finishes his course, she go he goes back to his house. She gets pregnant the normal way. But every there, there's now there's now anticipation. There's now uh, people are waiting for something, something significant's happening because they see this miraculous sign and it all happens because Zacharias doesn't believe. Suddenly everybody sees something that God did. And again, I think it helped Elizabeth because when Elizabeth conceives, look at verse 24. Now, after those days, his wife conceived and she hid herself five months. Now, some scholars say, well, she hid herself because she wasn't sure. She doubted. She was like her husband. Calvin says, that's nonsense. Calvin says, look at what she says. Look at her words. Calvin says, quote, Elizabeth's words show clearly that her expectation was not doubtful nor uncertain. What does she say? Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. She believed she was pregnant and it was real and it was from God right from the beginning. And I I don't doubt, though, that she was helped by her husband. She knows her husband. He's a priest, for goodness sake. He can't keep his mouth shut. She knows. The Lord has worked here. She sees that sign, and in God's grace, she now more easily believes that, yes, she's going to have a child, and she believes, and she conceives because she believes And she, why does she hide it? Because she's humble. She is going to humbly give God the glory, probably for five months until she couldn't hide it anymore. She doesn't let anybody know. She could have for five months been celebrated. For five months, she humbles herself. She gives God the glory. And it was a difficult thing for her. It's always a hard thing when a woman is barren. We saw this in the Genesis with Sarah, who was barren for so long. Elizabeth is barren. Hannah is barren. Rebecca is barren. I said Isaac has to pray for her. Some of the most godly women in the Bible are barren. And yes, God did use it sometimes to judge sinful women like Michael. She has no children. That's clear judgment. And so what the people of God unfortunately did was whenever a woman was barren, they would judge her. And that's why she says to take away my reproach among the people. It shouldn't have been. Elizabeth was one of the most godly women in the nation. The Bible says that she and her husband were blameless, walking in all the commandments of the Lord, righteous before God. And yet she was looked at with disdain by the other women and the men, because she can't have kids. Well, Elizabeth must be doing something. God didn't give her kids. You know the psalm that I picked for the call to worship? It's the ungodly... Who are satisfied with children. Did you see that? We can make children an idol. I know children are a blessing from the Lord. But some people are blessed. By not having children. Or even a spouse. Some people are blessed with the gift of singleness. Whereby the scripture says they can serve God without the concerns of a spouse. And they can serve God even more readily and more often. Let's not make children the only blessing from the lord children are a blessing but if you don't have children and you're serving a lord the lord i guarantee you he's blessing you and if you're single and you live your whole life single you haven't missed out on a blessing you know the lord we can't make the horizontal everything we can't idolize even our children And I think that's something that unfortunately Israel more and more did. And so Elizabeth is blamed and condemned and she's shamed before the people because she can't have children. And it was wrong. And yet still she hides it for five months to give God all the glory. And in her son would begin the call to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whereby people wouldn't do that anymore. We're not supposed to do that anymore, church. We're supposed to love one another. We're supposed to be gracious to one another. 1 John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If we love one another, God abides in us. What does that mean? If we don't love one another, the Holy Spirit is grieved. Maybe leaves us, allows judgment to come upon us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Beloved, let's allow the the ministry of John the Baptist to continue to have its effect in us. That we would love one another. That we too would be ready for the Lord to use us. Right, yes, he's already come. We're not ready for him to come again in some weird way or something. He will come again in judgment. But I think this means because we are called to love one another, that's when God is going to use us. That's when God is going to bless us. And when we fight and we pick and we devour and when we judge and we sinfully criticize, that's when God has nothing to do with us. That's when Jesus says, unless you repent, we're going to do this or that. You know, one of the things we don't ever want to lose is our first love. Church in Ephesus was a solid church. But they had lost their first love. And they weren't living that out in loving one another. And so I want to exhort you this Christmas season. Take the message that Christ actually brought in his birth, that John the Baptist was going to point out, and that the angels again are going to say when he's born glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Let us practice that this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the message of John the Baptist, that he would call men to repent, that he would call men to turn their hearts towards one another. How can we serve you, Lord, if we hate one another? Help us to love one another and recognize that's one of the most fundamental ways in which we show our love for you when we love one another And so bless us, Lord, bless this church with a believing of the message of John the Baptist so that we would more readily believe the message of Jesus. For we ask it in his name, amen.